Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. I am so excited to announce the release of my new book, Rebel Educator, Create Classrooms Where Impact and Imagination Meet. It's now available on Amazon and anywhere where you read or listen to your books. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome Rebel Educators. I am here today with Adam F.C. Fletcher. He is the founder of soundout.org and the Free Child Institute. These organizations have reached over 2,500 schools working for meaningful student involvement in the school system. He has written over 20 books on a variety of issues, including research, theory, and practices supporting student voice and meaningful student involvement. Welcome, Adam. Hi, Tanya. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. So you've worked with many schools around the country and around the world. Are there some themes you notice when schools seek you out? Why do they find you? You know, 20 years ago, we had the beginning of this conversation around no child left behind, all the ridiculousness of standardized education, standardized assessment, standardized curriculum coming raining down from the skies. And schools freaked out. They didn't know what it meant. 20 years ago, I began talking to schools about student engagement, student voice. And the themes that I find today are vastly different than they were then. Because 20 years ago, nobody talked about student engagement and nobody was talking about student voice. And that's what they originally came to me for. Since then, I evolved this kind of theory about meaningful student involvement, this, this radical notion that students can be infused, every student in every school, in every grade level, every academic ability can be infused throughout the educative process from the top to the bottom, planning to research, to teaching, to evaluation, to decision-making and advocacy, and that students can have these roles all throughout schools, throughout the school system. Not as some kind of a placation, a little pat on the head, but as part of the course of teaching and learning and leadership. And that it could be for every student and not just the exceptional student. So the schools that seek me out today are the ones that are going to get serious about equity. They're working to overcome the challenges of classist and racist discrimination. And they're really looking forward to a new role for students throughout schools. And that's where I help them. What do you find is the biggest challenge for schools? I mean, it, it sounds very different from a teacher preaching to a class. If you're going to give students the opportunity to be involved, to plan, to evaluate, to teach, to have all of these roles that traditionally the educator has. So how do you work with schools to change that pedagogy in the school and change that mindset within the school and shift the culture, I guess, is really what you're, you're doing? Well, there's three elements to this stool and culture is one of the elements. So it's culture is kind of those shared opinions, those shared beliefs, the shared thoughts that we all have among us that drive our actions, they drive the outcomes. And that is one element of what I do. Another element of what I do is work with people on their attitudes, their personal thoughts, beliefs, ideas, mindsets that keep them entrenched in doing the things the way that they've always done them. And then the third element that I work on is systems. Systems being the formal structural components that make up what we do in schools, whether it's rules and laws or positions and titles or curriculum and assessments, whatever that is, working across those three legs of the stool, as it were, culture, attitude, and structure systems. 
So with that said, Tanya, the biggest thing that gets in the way of all of it is what I call adultism. It's actually a really old word that comes from more than 150 years ago. But adultism is this idea that we have in our society an implicit bias towards adults that results in discrimination against young people. This bias towards adults means that as anybody who's seen as an adult, whether you are 16, 18, 21, 25, 35, whatever the magic number is, because we don't just have one number, we have to have 72 different numbers, apparently. If you're seen as an adult, we favor your opinions. We favor your actions. We favor your attitudes. We favor your beliefs, all of the above and so much more. Adultism is apparent in the curriculum of our schools. Who teaches, how they teach, where they teach, when they teach, what the outcomes are. It's apparent in the physical building of our school buildings. Whether that's the door handle height, which in an elementary school, door handles aren't put at third grader level. They're put at 21-year-old level with the idea that it's the teacher who's opening the door. So then you have these third graders who are struggling to pull down the handles. Or when they get into their seats, you know, in lots of elementary schools, they have nice short chairs that are physically comfortable for students. But by high school, we're treating high school students as if they don't need unique physical features like being tired at 8 a.m. in the morning or needing more attention-grabbing physical spaces than just bland walls and staring out the window. So this adultism is in every component of our school, and that's the biggest barrier. Yeah, it's the first thing that I thought of when you started talking about it was how happy I was on my 30th birthday because I felt like people were finally going to take me serious. You know, I'd been an adult technically for a while, right? Able to vote, able to drink, do all those adult things. But I still felt like I wasn't taken seriously. And somehow by turning 30, I was like, yes, I'm an adult. (laughs) So to think of the irony of a teacher who's 25 and still feels like they're being treated like a kid within a school building, it's incredible. Well, all of our teachers, regardless of their age, I think often feel like that at different times throughout the school day and throughout the school year. But thinking about, you know, what you were saying about high school and it part of it goes back to the schedule, which relates to beginning scheduling around agriculture and around early industry and when shifts would get on and off and when we could harvest and all of those things for setting the school schedule. And now it's around adult schedules and what time we need to be to work and what time we get off work, not necessarily what's neurologically or developmentally best for children. So that's a much bigger societal question of how would you shift all of our scheduling and logistics of school to be beneficial both for the development of children, but also for the things adults need to be productive in society. And keep moving that downstream in the sense that it's not just what's developmentally best for young people, because those developmental markers are actually arbitrary and they aren't set in stone. There are so many young people today who are growing up in schools and outside of schools who don't ascribe or otherwise fit into regular developmental norms. That could be because of learning deficits. That could be because of trauma in their lives. That could be because of developmental forwardness. They've, they've shot ahead. We have these technological devices that are insisting that people, that students progress much quicker with technology than we ever did when we were young. I have a six-year-old in my house who is a master of the iPad. At age six, I was like 29, 32, some number when the iPad came out. And it took me a decade to figure out its nuances and subtleties. Now I'm the master of the iPad at age 46. 
What does that mean to a six-year-old? You know, that's, that's ridiculous and, and mundane to them. So we have these students who have all these different developmental markers. And even though we have had psychology and we've have had physiobiology and, and different kinds of structures that have helped the sciences, that have helped us to study the human brain and how learning work, a lot of that is even prescribed on bias towards adults because we look at adulthood as being the high bar of human development, when in reality, we know that as adults, there are a lot of people who at the age of 18 or 21 or 25 or 30 or 46 are still in that developmental process. I hope I'm still learning and growing and changing. I could become a stick in the mud and stagnant and static and all of the things. But I aspire to be more like that six-year-old who, since she's conquered technology, now she's moving on to visual arts or she's moving on to languages or she's dot, dot, dot. You know, she's all over the place. I want to be like that kid. I want to be like any young person who has that neuroplasticity and that ability to reach across the spectra of academic concerns, of social concerns, of interpersonal concerns. But then through the construct of what I call meaningful student involvement, I want those students to be able to apply those concerns, that knowledge, those abilities in the actual operation of the educative environment. So that rather than being the passive recipients of adult-driven learning, every student of every grade level and every ability and every subject becomes a driver and a partner, an equitable partner in learning, teaching, and leadership. So that means seeing where they're at and working with them for where they can go, but doing it consistently across the board instead of just for the special students who ascribe to be just like adults, no matter what age they are. What would that look like in a classroom? If you were the teacher and you were teaching in this manner and students are following their interest and they're agents of their own learning and they're sharing this knowledge and they've mastered the iPad and they're moving on to their next feat of intelligence, what does that look like if you are that classroom teacher and I were to walk into your classroom? One of my favorite quotes ever walking into a school is a big banner right across the front hallway that says democracy is noisy. And to my way of thinking, Tanya, that's every classroom that embodies what meaningful student involvement is. Luckily, we have research. Uh, Over the last 20 years, there have been more than 20 major studies conducted, longitudinal studies that looked at the effect of meaningful student involvement, both at the individual classroom level, at the whole building level, at the district level, and at large state or provincial levels. And it's really exciting because what we see are classrooms that are very dynamic, that are very engaged. They might embrace service learning. They might embrace action-based learning. They might embrace project-based learning. But these different teaching methodologies that are very student-driven, that are very community-centric, and really put democracy as a functional, actual, operative activity rather than just a passive kind of noise in the background. So it makes not just voting and not just participation important, but it makes the actual process of teaching and learning become very transparent and become very interactive. And again, I can't say it enough, you know, it becomes very democratic. So these classrooms uh, have a lot of activity. They use a lot of external stimulus beyond the walls of the classroom, whether that's community-wide, whether that's on the internet. They use a lot of uh, interactive modalities in terms of teaching and learning so that students have a lot of internet-based learning, but also a lot of opportunities to watch videos, a lot of opportunities to interact with other students in different spaces and places. And then it positions equity as up front of the table conversation, again, rather than the background noise, so that students can identify, A, this is what I know, this is what I don't know. The teacher works with them to identify 
what I know and what I don't know. And then build upon that in a constructivist fashion, instead of assuming that every student's tabula rasa and we got to start over again from scratch every semester and these kinds of things. So everything that you said, and then layered on top of that, all of the intricacies of personalized learning at its best, but when conducted, not just for the benefit of the individual student, but for the actual school as a community and really taking that to its wholeness and broadest breadth. That's really what meaningful student involvement looks like at a classroom level. The cool part about it is that the most progressive classrooms are in turn, not just acting as individual silos, but as part of larger school communities where students have roles in the hallways, where they're passing between classes, roles that reflect their community building role opportunities. They have opportunities at the building level, whether that's through curriculum decisions, whether that's through teacher hiring and firing and evaluation, whether that's through building design, lots of different ways. And this is actual research that's shown this to be evident, that's shown this to have real outcomes. And the outcomes often reflect our highest intentions for education, whether they are along the lines of, you know, what the National Governors Association wants to see or the federal government or what local districts and states want to see. We see a lot of civic outcomes. We also see a lot of sustained learning that goes beyond the classroom environment and throughout life. So that classroom-based meaningful student is really rich within the classroom and outside of it. And it becomes this thing that is very amoebous. And my bias is that it's beautiful, but it's complex and reflects the kind of the intricacies of really reflecting student voice in it. We like to call it organized chaos. <laughs> Chaotic theory. It's a beautiful thing. There's, there's order in the chaos. Yeah. So you mentioned the things that government want to see, the things that state government and national government want to see as outcomes of learning. And I think one of the main ways that we measure that, at least here in the U.S., is through standardized tests. And as going into college, even those standardized tests, the ACT, the SAT, or the standardized testing that we do starting in third grade in schools. So for a school that really moves into personalized learning, is really focused on meaningful student involvement, how do you then look at assessment? So one of the most exciting things that's happening, first is just to say it and put it out there in the front, is that lots of large schools are moving away from ACT and SATs and standardized tests as being their marker of entrance. Thank goodness that that's both the Ivy Leagues as well as the UC system and what's happening there. That's just, to me, that reverberates in much bigger ways beyond kind of speaking to the assessment. I think the other part that I would say before answering your question really directly is that we need new markers for what we're looking for in schools. I mean, the fact of the matter is, and, and the pandemic has shown this so, so much, academic learning is an outcome of schools, but it's not the only outcome. And we need new forms of assessment that actually look at student engagement as being the bar rather than academic achievement. So it's an either or. Student engagement is a much more affective and I think transponding marker that allows for lots of different opinions, ideas, attitudes, beliefs, outcomes, inputs to be reflected in a real way rather than an academic achievement, which is obviously and has been shown consistently to be inherently biased and inherently discriminatory, not just against race, but also against gender, also against class, also against lots of the other factors that are emerging in our society as being heat concerns. So uh, standardized testing isn't the best thing to let students in school are measured with. Second thing, we need new measures. Third thing, to the academic achievement and to that element, one of the most exciting things that I've seen is that there are attempts to infuse meaningful student involvement into IB programs, uh, international baccalaureate programs, 
their attempts to infuse me student involvement in the AP and advanced placement programs. And between those two as kind of extreme measures of um, high proficiency in school, I think that there's a dedication to allowing meaningfulness to pervade the educational experience. So if a student has to take a standardized test, they can still find the avenue for meaningfulness even within that standardized operation because they understand what is the purpose of this? How does it function best? And best teaching already reflects that, that students have a great deal of ownership and investment in not just the activities that they're doing, but the outcomes that they reflect. So a student taking a standardized test understands how that could affect them and what that could do. And that in turn can reflect that attempt to have meaningful involvement throughout the system. So it can be relevant. It shouldn't have to be relevant. And in some places it's increasingly irrelevant, but all the same. This is one of the questions that I hear a lot when we look at a project-based learning is, well, how do you assess for that? Because we have all of these standardized tests and it's very easy to measure everybody against one yardstick when you're just looking at content regurgitation. But when you're looking at student engagement or when you're looking at other aspects of student development, which we're increasingly asking our students to do, then how do we gauge all of those things becomes an interesting question. And hearing you talk about how we share that with students and how we share that this is meaningful and why it's meaningful and why they need to care about it reminds me of conversations I had with my five-year-old. My oldest daughter had cerebral palsy, and so she was continually underestimated in her intelligence. She was nonverbal. She couldn't walk, but she was extremely curious and intelligent and knew what was happening around her all the time. But whenever we'd go into an assessment, they would bring out baby toys for her because they were testing her cause and effect. And so we'd always have this conversation around, this is just part of what you need to go through. You need to do your best. You need to show them everything that you know and everything that you can do. Otherwise, you're going to end up in this baby class. And these are the toys they're going to give you every day. And so it's a part of this thing that we just have to go through, which is kind of the way we're starting to see standardized tests. It's this thing that we have to go through to make sure that you have this measurement so that the government's happy, but it doesn't really mean much beyond that. (laughs) The worst part is I think that we're seeing a wholesale dismissal of what that really is and does for every student rather than just a blind acceptance. And that wholesale dismissal takes so many different forms. I mean, that's really where the unschooling movement comes from and where the de-schooling movement comes from is this whole notion that schools have failed in their structure and their format and their style and their objectives and that we need to stop schooling altogether. That's also where the homeschooling, a lot of the homeschooling movement has come from, that we can do it better within our personalized setting with personalized learning for every single learner all the time with the people who can affect them the most in the most positive ways, i.e. the parent. But then the reality is these vast chasms. And, and, and we have the chasms between within public schools too, where we have suburban districts that are majority white, that are majority upper, upper class, that have a completely different educational experience than low-income schools and schools that are deep urban settings. And so the point of all of that's to say, yes, it's jacked up. And, and that says nothing of academic ability. That says nothing of social cultural acceptance. But then that gets back to the point about adultism, that we have as adults, and, and, and this is grandiose, and forgive me if it's too far, but adults have failed students consistently for 100 years of structured school. We need something different. We've had these great prophets of teaching and learning, whether that's as recent as Ken Robinson or Paula Freire or 
George Counts or John Dewey, all of these and bell hooks and all of these educators who have been so powerful, who've used so many words to say so much about how we need to change schools. All of those were fixes to the system that subtly, gradually, eventually could hopefully transform things. Meaningful student involvement holds all of that intention, whether it's social justice, whether it is educational equity, whether it's cultural acceptance, whether it's life after school, and it swirls them all together in this great prospect for learners to have a single avenue and for educators to have a single avenue to reinvent schools in a practical way for every learner all the time. It's just, here it is. And it provides that great framework for it to happen. Wow. So I was going to ask how you think learning systems and spaces need to evolve, but I think we've already covered that. <laughs> I think it's interesting to consider, Tanya. I mean, just, just take the picture of the school board meeting. And we won't necessarily address the ones from the last six months that, or a year that have been so anarchistic and however we want to say that. But let's consider them in the long run. You know, these stagnant spaces filled with elected people who barely anybody turns out to vote for. And their actions are oftentimes mired in, they're just hard to see. It's hard to understand why school boards do the things they do, whether that is accepting the decision of the Texas curriculum decision-making thing that comes down and affects everybody nationwide, or if that's accepting the money from the federal government that necessitates everybody follow a strict standard for 5% of your budget, whatever the decisions the school board makes at that given point. That's the way that school boards are these days. Nationwide, thousands of school boards, or the 5,000 school boards across the country, they all operate in that kind of obfuscation. Just that one structure. Say that there's six people on a school board, or nine people, let's go with nine. Now let's take nine students, better yet, 19 students. Or in the case of Boston Unified School District, where they have 35 students who form the Boston Student Advisory Council, who meet every single week to talk about the issues that are being brought up on the school committee as the Boston Student Advisory Council. And the Boston School Committee is informed by this Boston Student Advisory Council on every issue that students want to take on. This is a practical, real example that's been happening in Boston, Massachusetts for 15 years now. And there's real wins by the students where they actually raised new agendas and brought out new bylaws and regulations that the school board accepted as being in full force from the students themselves. We could talk about Maryland, where there's actually students who sit on the state school board to inform those decisions. And this is just the school board structure. Oh, we could talk about California. We could talk about the local school funding committees that have to integrate students as members and some districts that have actually done that and the powerful effect that that can have. So this is just one function. It's that decision-making, but there are so many more that are just as thick or thicker with opportunities for that meaningfulness for every learner. And basically what we have to do is reimagine from the ground up. If you're a building level teacher, if you're a district decision maker, if you're a state policy person, whatever that role is, you can meaningfully involve students too, because we have that many students. So we're not going to run out of their energy. Question is, as adults, are we responsible enough to engage them in meaningful ways? I think so much of the goal of a lot of project-based or inquiry-based learning is to follow student interests and is to give them that agency for taking control. And it becomes an interesting thought of, you know, what if the project-based learning is running your school? And what does that look like if you were to flip that over? And as we ask teachers to be facilitators in the classroom of learning, you know, what if we as adults are facilitators of learning throughout all levels of the organization? 
And then what does that look like if we extend into the community, if it starts in the school, but then we extend that, I'm going to say apprenticeship sort of program, for lack of a better word at this moment, but into other industries and into other businesses within the ecosystem of learning within our community. And really what you begin to get at is that idea of democracy as an experiment. And you begin to reinforce the notion of public education as the oven that democracy is baked in. You know, that, that we can really start to see the breadth and the possibilities rather than we make kids go to school because we need them to be there because we're all at work too busy to deal with it otherwise. You know, it's we got to break out of that and get to the next place of what is the real potential here? Because honestly, again, the dilemma of the pandemic is that it's shown the irrelevancy of the physical plant, even more so the danger and potential trauma of the experience of every single student. Because we're all dealing with the melee that the last couple of years have brought with a lot of students. And this is the thing that isn't being said loudly or well. A lot of students have dealt pretty well. There are students who've been increasingly successful because of the pandemic, because of learning at home. And if anything, to me, to my way of thinking, that reinforces the need for meaningful student involvement rather than diminishing it. Because it can reinvigorate schools with the purpose and the intention and the possibilities that they need to reflect as these institutions in a real democracy. Rather than just, hey, we just got to fix it. We just got to tweak a little bit. We just got to fix it a little bit. And then everything will be okay. We need more than that. Well, let's change gears a little bit and think back. And we didn't really start with your journey or how you got into this work. And I'm going to step even farther back than that and ask you if you can remember a story from your elementary school years and share something with us that you remember from that time frame. And I always love to ask because I run an elementary school. So I love to hear what others remember from that time in their life. Yes. One of my favorite training activities is remembering a day. And I walk the participant through a visualization of a whole day of school. It depends on the group, but ninth grade or fourth grade. And just to see if they can get all those memories. So here's a little bit for you. I spent the first 10 years of my life growing up with my family, three siblings and my mother and my father. We were homeless for 10 years. My father was a Vietnam vet with extreme post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was a rough go, just a hard time. For second grade, I went to seven different elementary schools in second grade alone. And I only had one second grade year. So imagine this, just that constant shuffling and that constant movement. When we finally got landed, it was in Omaha, Nebraska. I ended up growing up in North Omaha, Nebraska. And I had no sense of belonging. I had no sense of identity beyond what I had been told all of my years. And what I was told is that I was a Canadian kid, was that I was homeless, that I didn't have a place, you know, all those kinds of negative messages. My school teacher for the first year that we were in Omaha, she found my, my love of drawing and art. And she invited me to draw a poster for her classroom door. And it was Garfield, you know, Garfield sitting in a beach chair or some such thing. And I copied it off of some comics, nothing intricate or beautiful. I was a kid. But that feeling of really being able to see myself on the door of this classroom for all these students all the time suddenly brought me right into that space. And that said, the belonging I had missed for all those years and that sense of place that I missed for all those years was real to me. It was real because I had some ownership. It was real because I had some voice. And that teacher who knew to bring that into my trajectory changed everything for me because from then on, nothing was the same. So 
that's the story that I would offer to you on that angle. And frankly, I, I lost that teacher somewhere along the way. Uh, they got married, got a new last name, whatever the story was. But I still stand indebted both to the community that grew me up and to the school that brought me in so closely and allowed me to become who I am. It's a great reminder for teachers everywhere and for all of us as adults that it's sometimes something that might seem insignificant, but means so much and creates belonging and creates understanding and creates a sense of community. And I would guess that teacher knew exactly what she was doing and that that's what she was inviting you into, but in such an incredible way. And we're definitely the same generation because around that time frame, I also drew a picture of Garfield on top of a presidential report on President Garfield, which I also copied <laughs> off of a comic. We rock. I'm the Garfield forever. What do you do? <laughs> so, Adam, how can people get in touch with you or reach out to you or find out about your organizations? Yeah. So three websites that I hand out. One is soundout.org. It's all about meaningful student involvement. Another one is freechild.org, and that's all about youth engagement in communities. And then the last one is adamfletcher.net, and that's the one that holds everything. For a work and career and life, I consult schools and train and speak as often as I can. So I'd love to get out there and interact with more people. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Adam. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me, Tanya. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator Podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. Upacademysf.com where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. Rebel Educators.